Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artists thinkers. Great to have you with us. Latin, hosting independent artists and thinkers. I'm so happy to welcome you to the show. We've got a great show lined up for you today. I'm also really happy and grateful that so many people are listening to the show live and in the archives and in the iTunes podcast channel. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying these interviews. I certainly am. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. Or sometimes they're operating in the structures, but they're doing it in unusual and creative ways. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you people, bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Please call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers, and the chat room is open. So say hi if you're in there. Uh, Email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a guest or if you have questions you want me to ask of a particular upcoming guest. You can reach me at Tracy at TracyLSlatten.com, and that's Tracy, T-R-A-C-I, and it's Slatten with an S. Uh, Sometimes it sounds like a different word, so it's Slatten with an S. In the coming weeks, some fascinating guests are coming on. Next week, on Friday, March 4th at noon, so that's again on a Friday, Author and psychotherapist Dave Rico will be on talking about the egoless path. And his new book, You Are Not What You Think, The Egoless Path to Self-Esteem and Generous Love. And this is a beautiful book, so I encourage everyone to go out, get it, and read it. Dave was on the show last year, and I'm really excited to have him on again. I love his books. On Thursday, March 10 at 1 p.m., hip-hop literature author Anthony White will be on talking about his journey as an author and what it was like creating a new genre of literature. So I'm really looking forward to that show. On Thursday, March 17th at 1 p.m., image consultant Lauren Solomon will be on talking about your best self and the business of being you. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am so happy and delighted today 
to have Commissioner Edwin Fountain of the World War I Centennial Commission on. Edwin Fountain of Arlington, Virginia, has served as General Counsel of the American Battle Monuments Commission since March 2015. <coughs> Excuse me. He was previously a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of the international law firm Jones Day, where he practiced for 24 years. Edwin served as board chair of the D.C. Preservation League, the leading historic preservation advocacy group in the nation's capital, until 2007. In 2008, he co-founded the World War I Memorial Foundation, which successfully advocated for funding to restore the District of Columbia's World War I Memorial on the National Mall and for establishment of a national World War I Memorial in the nation's capital. That advocacy led to his appointment in 2013 as a member of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, which he now serves as vice chairman. Among his other civic duties, uh, civic activities, Edwin is a past member of the Arlington County Commission for the Arts and is a board member and past president of the Bowen Macaulay Dance, the leading contemporary dance con company in the Washington area. Very cool. He graduated from the University of North Carolina in 1986, obtained a master's degree in international relations from the London School of Economics, and attended law school at the University of Virginia. You can see more about Edwin Fountain on the World War I Centennial website, which is www.worldwar1centennial.org, and that's a numerical one, which is also at www.ww1cc.org slash design. Edwin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Tracy. Happy to be here. I'm really happy that you're coming to talk about the World War I Memorial and you know, and my listeners know, that I'm really excited about this memorial because my husband is a sculptor on the project, Sabin Howard. So I was really happy you could come and give us kind of a more in-depth look at this whole process and what it means for the country and for Washington. Well, delighted to do it. Uh, any of these projects have a lot of complexities and issues and challenges, and I think it helps people sort of know what those issues are and know what the objectives are and how we're going about them as they as they in turn come to their own conclusions about about the design itself. Exactly. It, it seems like a complex process already just from what I'm looking in from the outside and such a worthy one. I mean, it's really important. So I'll begin with my usual opening question for my guests because it kind of situates listeners in to who you are and what you're about. And it's a big question, so I'll warn you. And just um, so get into it and sink your teeth into it, run with it and um, – so this is the question. How did you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know that you were going to be involved in arts and memorials? Was art a major presence in your home when you were growing up? Did your family talk about monuments? What did you think you would be? So start with your childhood and lead up till now. Well, I don't know, Tracy. We only have an hour, so I don't know if I can finish <laughs> answering the question at that time. Um, uh, art was, art was in my family primarily musically. Um, I have an uncle who was a very successful concert pianist. Uh, my mother was not a professional musician, but, uh, she was also a pianist. And when I was in elementary school, she went back to, you know, she already had her, her, her degree in, in English before she was married. But then after she had kids, she went back to school and got another degree in, in music and vocal performance. Uh, and so she was active in various musical endeavors the entire time I was growing up. All of our, all of us kids played one instrument or another for at least a while. 
I played piano for six years, and I was 11 years old and didn't want to play piano, so I gave it up, and I've regretted it ever since. Um, in terms of visual arts, not not so much. As I look back, it, it just occurred to me that I had a, a very close friend in elementary school whose father was an architect, um, which didn't I was aware of that at the time, but it didn't make a particular impression on me. But I was always somewhat interested in his work. They lived in a very interesting modernist house. Uh, this was back in the 1970s. Um, and I think I really first got actively interested in art my senior year of high school when my mother took me to England during spring break. And, uh, and we went to the Tate Gallery, and I saw an exhibition by the English artist Sir Edwin Landseer. And obviously I was a fan of his because we shared a first name. But I also very much appreciated his work. Uh, and then in college, I took a I was a I was a Russian studies and political science major. But but perhaps my favorite class in college was a honors art history survey uh, from the Renaissance to the present that I took. Um, and uh, and and since then, I've I've always had a uh, an amateurish interest in, in in visual art. And I had the opportunity to live in London, and of course went to the great museums there and. I've had the opportunity to travel to you know, Paris and Berlin and, and more recently Rome and, and Venice and, and places like that. And so I've had, had opportunities to see a lot of the great art in the world. The year that I lived in London, uh, it was the first time that I'd lived in a big city, really. And, uh, and, and in London, I was struck by the juxtaposition of modern architecture with you know centuries-old architecture. And sometimes that juxtaposition was successful, and sometimes it wasn't. Uh, and again, I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. It was just something that I observed and and uh, thought a little bit about what I liked or didn't like, but it wasn't the field I was pursuing. And then I came back and went off to law school and, and began practice. And after I'd been practicing for about 10 years, uh, an opportunity came along to start doing pro bono legal work for the D.C. Preservation League, which, as you noted, is the principal historic preservation nonprofit advocacy group in the nation's capital. And uh, and because I did have this latent interest in, in urban design and, and architecture and, and those sorts of issues, I, I uh, responded to the opportunity. And I began representing the, the league in, in various disputes over landmarking or proposed demolition or alteration of, of historic buildings in Washington. Um, I imagine a lot of your listeners are involved in nonprofit organizations of one type or another, so they will they will understand me when I say that the first law of nonprofits is that they will take all the time and money that you give them and then come back and ask for more. <laughs> uh, and so, within a year or so of uh, beginning of, of representing the DC Preservation League, they invited me to join their board, and I did that. And then, with a year or so after that, I became the vice president of the organization, and then a year or so after that, they asked me to be president, and I said no for about two years, and then I eventually relented, and, and I served them as president for three years. Um, and then my term ended in 2007. And during that time, um, I had taken an interest in the District of Columbia War Memorial. Uh, for those of your listeners familiar with, with Washington and the National Mall, uh, the D.C. War Memorial is located along the Lincoln Reflecting Pool in front of the Lincoln Memorial, halfway between the World War II Memorial and the Korean War Veterans Memorial, 
and it's now right across Independence Avenue from the new Martin Luther King Memorial. Uh, but that memorial was established in 1931 when there was nothing else out there besides the Lincoln Memorial. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had been active for several, for 20, 30, 40 years. It was designed, it, it is a, Gre- a round Greek temple looking building. It was designed to serve as a bandstand uh, in, tr- in the tradition of World War I memorials that were active memorials. They had an active civic use rather than being something static and passive. Um, but that, that, that use gradually uh, languished. And uh, and the site eventually became a bit overgrown. The vegetation started hemming it around, hemming hemming it around it. Uh, and and then, as as in the way of all of all structures, it began deteriorating a bit. Uh, began to have water damage and staining and cracking. And and at one mm. point, there was even a, a a small sapling growing out of one of the seams at the top of the top of the structure. But this was a building that I had run past when I went running on the mall many, many times and had always wondered what it was. And one day I stopped and went over to look at it and, and figured out what it was. And and frankly, a few years later, I'd forgotten what it was. And so I did that all over again. Uh, but in the meantime, D.C. Preservation League had put it on its annual most endangered places list. Uh, and we, in fact, we had our press conference announcing the, the most endangered places list there one year. And, uh, and so I did take this interest in it. And, and that's in part because uh, I grew up in a military family. My father was a career naval officer, so I grew up in the military. My my academic training was in foreign policy and international relations and strategic affairs and history and whatnot. So I had a general interest in in in, in international history, uh, military history, whatnot. I had never particularly focused on World War One, uh, and that's even though both of my grandfathers were in the army during World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as an aside there, one grandfather was an artilleryman uh, from North Carolina. He was an artilleryman because he grew up on a farm and he knew how to handle horses and mules, and that's mm-hmm. what pulled the artillery in World War yep. I. Yep. Uh, and then my other grandfather, uh, representing a very different experience, he had emigrated to this country from Latvia in 1906 when he was 10 years old, uh, and I don't know if he was a citizen at that point uh, when the war broke out or not, but he uh, he, he enlisted and and uh, went through officer training school, and and so he represents the the American immigrant experience in World War One, which is a very significant part of that story, and and uh, without getting political, obviously very timely today. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't really what drove me uh, to this interest. It was really just an interest in this particular memorial, which I liked. I liked it because it was secluded and quiet and serene and peaceful in an otherwise bus- busy city. And so when my term on the board ended, uh, frankly, I was looking around for a new project, and uh, and I thought, well, it shouldn't be that hard to raise the money to get this monument restored. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that process, I teamed up with a photographer from from Michigan named David DeYoung, who had uh, who was in the process of photographing the last remaining American veterans of the war, and he had become very close to a gentleman named Frank Buckles from West Virginia, and Frank turned out to be the last known American veteran of World War One before he died. Wow. How old was five... he when he died? How old was he? He enlisted, uh, he was born in 1901, uh, wow. and what's interesting about 1901 is that in that year there was still an American veteran of the War of 1812 still alive. Wow. Uh, so the two of them together spanned more than 200 years of our nation's history. Uh, but Frank was born in 1901. He lied about his age to enlist in the Army when he was 16. 
um, was ultimately sent over to Europe after the fighting, but he served as a driver uh, in Europe after the war had ended during the, during the occupation, um, and uh, was honorably discharged, came back, went into the shipping industry, uh, worked for the White Star Line, which most people know is the line that the Titanic sailed under, Mm. And in 1941, they sent him to the Philippines to work out of their Manila office. And he wound up being captured by the Japanese when World War II started, and he wound up serving three and a half years in a Japanese internment camp. Oh. Um, and then came out, back out, moved to West Virginia, settled down, uh, started a 330-acre farm, and actively operated it until he died. Uh, so he how, was a how, old was he, how old was he when he, was, he died? He was 110. He was 110 when he died in 2011. God bless him. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, he's buried at Arlington National Cemetery, just uh, just a few feet away from General John Pershing. That's cool. But uh, so we we all together act, advocated for restoration of the D.C. War Memorial and and made enough headway with the National Park Service that that when the Park Service received five hundred uh, five hundred million dollars from Congress for capital improvement projects as part of the stimulus bill back in two thousand nine. Uh, they took $3 million of that money and used it to restore the D.C. War Memorial. Mm. So that was a success. But in that process, we had started talking about the fact that that here was this local World War One memorial uh, located on the National Mall, pretty much immediately adjacent to the national memorials to the three other great wars of the 20th century, Vietnam, mm-hmm. Korea, and, and World War Two. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, you know many people ask, well, well, gee, why isn't there, you know, why is it 100 years later we don't have a national World War One memorial? And it's because at the time after World War One we didn't think in those terms. After the Civil War, uh, a tradition evolved in this country of local war memorials. Uh, for those of us who live in the in the eastern half of the country, at least, mm-hmm. uh, virtually every one of our hometowns has some sort of Civil War memorial. And that's how it was done primarily after World War One. Cities and towns and communities and civic organizations and universities and many other local uh, organizations of one sort or another established memorials to their citizens who fought and died in the war. And, it, and they did it at a state or local or, or other, other level. Uh, in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, the, good, the good folks of Kansas City did establish a very impressive memorial that was conceived as a memorial to all the nation's soldiers, um, but no one thought thought in terms one way or another about a national war memorial. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until after Vietnam, when the Vietnam veterans advocated and established, advocated for and ultimately established what we now know as the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. That, that Edwin, we've lost you. Edwin? Edwin, I can't hear you. I don't know. And, Hi, Edwin? Edwin? Yeah. Uh, we lost you right after you said something about the Vietnam War Memorial. So you want to pick up there again? Sure, sure. I'm sorry. Uh, so I was saying that that, that after Vietnam, uh, the Vietnam veterans advocated for and ultimately established the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, the very striking wall of 58,000 names next to the Lincoln Memorial. And since then, we've worked backwards. Uh, after the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, we built the Korean War Veterans Memorial, and then we built the World War II Memorial. Mm-hmm. And we're at a point in the national conversation where we're talking about a a national World War One Memorial. And uh, there have been a couple different legislative proposals to authorize that, uh, either at the site of the D.C. War Memorial itself or at a new site mm-hmm. on the Mall. 
Um, and it was uh, as a result of being involved in those discussions that, that, that my name came up for appointment to the, to the United States World War I Centennial Commission, uh, which was chartered by Congress in 2013. Uh, and so I now serve on that commission as its vice chairman, and we're undertaking a variety of activity uh, in support of the commemoration of the centennial of the war. But we also undertook to, to complete that quartet, uh, symbolically if not physically, and establish a, a National World War I Memorial in Washington. Right, but it's not going to be on the National Mall, right? It's going to be in Pershing Park. That's right. It won't be on the mall because uh, the mall was filling up, frankly. Every, you know, more and more museums, more and more memorials. Uh, everybody wants to be on the mall because it gets 25 million visitors a year. Uh, it's the, it is uh, the symbolic heart of the nation, and, uh, and people want to be there. And so a number of years ago, Congress passed something called the Commemorative Works Act, which decrees that the National Mall is, quote, a substantially completed work of civic art, end quote, and, and declares that there shall be no new museums, monuments, memorials, visitor centers, anything of that sort on the mall. Um, we could have sought an, ex an exemption to that statute, and, and I would submit that if ever an exemption were warranted, it would be for World War I. Mm -hmm. But we ultimately chose not to for a variety of reasons. And, uh, and we opted for another site uh, called Pershing Park, which already has a World War One connection. Edwin. Yes. Yeah, Pershing Park already has a World War One connection. You you were saying. That's right. That's right. Because Pershing Park already has a memorial to General John Pershing, who was the commander of the American Expeditionary Forces in World War One. Uh, Pershing Park is located on Pennsylvania Avenue, which is the most symbolically important avenue. Uh, in the nation's capital, if not the country. Uh, it anchors the, the western end of the great diagonal of, of Pennsylvania Avenue that connects the capital to the White House. Um, it is one block from the White House, across the street from the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department, across the street from the historic Willard Hotel, uh, and has a view down Pennsylvania Avenue toward, toward the Capitol Dome. And it gets so, a lot of foot traffic from people going to and from the mall and the White House and, and elsewhere on the avenue. So it's, a, so it's a very good site. Well, let me ask you, what are the, some of the challenges of establishing a memorial there in Washington, D.C., in that park? Well, again, we've only got 40 minutes left, so I don't know if I can cover all of them. <clears throat> there, are, there are a number of them. Um, the first are from a really from a a, a fundamental design perspective. Uh, first of all, you have the question of how do you commemorate a war when all the veterans are gone? When you think about those other three memorials that I've talked about, you know all of them were built at a time when there was a strong contingency of of living veterans of those wars. Uh, and they were there to both advocate for and fundraise for and, and otherwise influence the design of the memorial. Uh, but they also were still present to take meaning from the memorial. And so the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was built in the very raw, immediate aftermath of, of Vietnam itself, a very unpopular war that, that, that where a political statement for or against the war would have been extremely controversial. Uh, the veterans didn't want a political statement. They didn't want to get into that debate. They wanted their service 
recognized and, and, and commemorated. And so we have this memorial with the names of the 58,000 American, Americans who, who died in the war. And that war is very, that, that memorial is very much a place of grieving. Uh, it's a place where families of veterans, immediate families of veterans who knew those veterans, a place where their comrades can come, find their name on the wall, remember that loved one, reflect, grieve, mourn, uh, you know, and celebrate their life when they were here. Uh, but it's very much a place of grieving. The World War II memorial is is very different. Uh, mm-hmm. World War II itself was a fundamentally different war than Vietnam. Uh, there's great national pride in what we accomplished in that war. Uh, and it was built at a time 50, 60 years after the war when the time for grieving was really passed to a large degree. And so that memorial is much more uh, a place of what I call celebratory return. Uh, you have these images of these honor flights of World War II veterans, uh, groups of veterans that fly to Washington and are escorted to the mall, and they're welcomed there as heroes and they're applauded, uh, and it's a place for them to celebrate what they what they accomplished, while also a time to remember to remember those who who didn't return. Mm-hmm. World War One, you don't have those you don't have those opportunities. Uh, yeah, you don't how have do you? How do you get people excited about this war and a memorial for the war that was so long ago? Well, that's been a real challenge because because World War One is very much a, a forgotten war in our nation's history uh, for a lot of different reasons, um, notwithstanding its 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 great significance at the time. Um, World War One is an ambiguous war. Uh, the reasons for why it started are very ambiguous. The reasons for our entry are somewhat ambiguous, and certainly the conclusion was extremely ambiguous and and ultimately set the stage for World War II 20 years later. Mm -hmm. Um, We were in it a relatively short time. Uh, The war started in in, in August 1914. We didn't join until April 1917, and it took another year before before we really began fighting in earnest, and we were really in the the main fight for about six months until until the armistice. Uh, and of course, it happened overseas. Um, and so, unlike the Civil War, we can't can't readily travel to battle sites. It didn't affect our country in the way that the Civil War did. Mm-hmm. And in contrast to later later wars that did occur overseas as well, World War One doesn't have the great wealth of of uh, of of, of did, didn't at the time and doesn't now have the great wealth of of imagery and reporting of the war. Uh, there weren't newsreels back in 1917, so people didn't follow the war at the movie theater or mm-hmm. later on the nightly news in the way that, that, that they did in later wars. There wasn't the great output of Hollywood production. Uh, we, we, have, we have very rich images of World War II because of all the many film and, te- and television productions, uh, most recently with Saving Private Ryan and, and Band of Brothers. You know, the Korean War we experienced through through the TV show MASH. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vietnam was very much part of the the daily newspaper and the nightly news. We didn't we didn't experience and we don't remember World War One that way, and it was subsumed. Uh, while although it was a major event at the time, it was it was to some extent overwhelmed in our consciousness by the Depression and then World War Two and then the Cold War, and with the passage of generations and immediate connections to people fought in the war, it, it gradually receded. And so it doesn't have that emotional appeal uh, in this country that that World War II or the Civil War might have, and it certainly doesn't have the emotional appeal that it does to people in France or Britain or Belgium or, or Germany well, or whatnot. In, in Europe, I know every village lost, you know, its 
brightest youth. I mean, every village in France and um, through Europe, they there were just terrible losses throughout the whole continent. But um, why is World War One important? Why should people be interested in this country? What about it um, is important? Has mattered? Well, there are there are there are two reasons I think, and they mirror they mirror what the what the Centennial Commission views as its two primary missions, which are education and commemoration in that order. Although they they feed they they support each other and, and each inspires the other. Education is important because World War One was arguably. Uh, uh, the most consequential event in American history, other than the Civil War, um, any event in the in the in the hundred years since the war that you would argue was was important is a direct outcome of World War One. Uh, internationally, uh, four empires fell uh, as a result result of World War One: uh, the German Empire, the Austrian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire. Uh, uh, the you know, the communist revolution occurred as a result of World War One, setting the stage for for the post World War Two Cold War. Uh, I talked a moment ago about how the, con- the how the conditions of the resolution of World War One led led inevitably to World War Two. Right, All the signing the of the conflict- Treaty of Versailles. The treaty of Versailles, and, and more importantly, something called the Sykes Picot Agreement in 1916, an agreement between the British and the French where they agreed how they would divide up the Middle East uh, after the war and, and in light of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. And, and that agreement drew many of the boundaries that, that are vexing us so tragically today in places like Syria and Iraq, uh, Israel, um, the Ukraine, you know, its history with Russia. Uh, world War I was a significant event. The states of Eastern Europe were created after World War I. Uh, um, you know, Africa and, and Southeast Asia uh, were redrawn after World War One, and so, in a real way, you can look at ISIS today and, and trace its lineage all the way back to World War One. And so, internationally, it completely transformed the, the world that we live in. Here at home, it was equally transformative. Uh, we entered the war as a as a still strongly agrarian. You know, debtor nation. We emerged as the leading, uh, as a creditor nation, and, and as the leading industrial and military power on uh, on the earth. Uh, it it marked our real entry onto the international stage, even though we retreated to some extent between the wars. But it began what what people today call the American century. Uh, it, it 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 was the, the the beginning of a more active, sometimes interventionist American foreign policy. Um, it you know it, it had great changes in our society. Women's rights made major advances because just as we say, Rosie the Riveter had a mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone's familiar with the images of Rosie the Riveter from World War II. Well, women also served in in industry during World War One. Uh, it was a it was an important stage in the advancement of rights of African Americans and other minorities. I talked about my grandfather's experience. You know, one way you could assimilate into the country and, 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 and earn your citizenship was to serve in the, in the military. Um, and, you know, race relations were very much in the, you know, for better or for worse, were very much in the forefront of people's minds throughout the war. Well, there, was, so something, all, there was something I saw on Facebook about the Harlem Hellfighters. That's right. So the Harlem Hellfighters were a, a, uh, a unit of, of African-American soldiers 
uh, organized out of the New York National Guard, uh, and as was the the, the 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 use throughout the military, they served in a segregated unit during the war. And a lot of African American units uh, were relegated to uh, behind the lines operations, working the working the ports in France where troops and, and materiel came. You know, working as grave diggers, much as they did in, in the Civil War. Uh, but there were two divisions, the 92nd and 93rd Divisions, that consisted of African-American units, and the Harlem Hellfighters, the 369th Regiment, was one of those units, and they served with great distinction. Uh, the 92nd Division was was essentially handed over to the French, and they served in French uniforms, and they served under French command, and did so with great distinction. And it's said that the 369th, the Harlem Hellfighters, served more days on the front line than any other American unit. Wow. Uh, the other interesting thing about the Hellfighters is that they had their own jazz band, because as their name indicates, uh, they many of their members came from the Harlem jazz scene of the early 20th century, and they had their own uh, had their own jazz band, which uh, along with another white jazz band that also operated out of the U.S. Army, uh, is credited with introducing jazz to to Europe, mm-hmm. and so they're uh, they're a very important story. Um, and uh, yeah, we understand that there's a recent graphic novel uh, about the Hellfighters by the same, by Max Brooks, the son of Mel Brooks, mm-hmm. uh, who also wrote the graphic novels that became uh, the movie World War Z. Um, and we understand that that novel's been optioned by Will Smith, and, and we'd love to see him make a movie of that book. That would be phenomenal. That'd be exciting. Yeah. So it well, was a so, so so it's important first because. You can't understand the country that we live in. You can't understand the world that we live in without understanding World War One. The second aspect is, and, and here, you know, my 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 predilection as a military brat and someone who grew up interested in this field certainly comes through. But but I think it's important. You know, the act of the act of a of, of one American going off to war, not just going off to war, but when he's there, uh, having the courage and the uh, to to put himself in harm's way and 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 put his life at risk for a cause greater than himself and for the good of his country is a profound thing, uh, and that service above anything else, as far as I'm concerned, is is worthy of our national commemoration. And and we again we we haven't we have an image of that kind of courage and sacrifice from seeing movies about D-Day or or Iwo Jima or Battle of the Bulge or or what have you. We don't have those images in our mind for World War One, so we don't feel it. And one objective of this memorial is, is how do we bring that out? How do we evoke that? How do we make people realize that this was a terrible war uh, and that Americans did incredibly heroic and courageous things and in some, you know, in the case of, of 58,000 of them or so, you know, died in battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a profound thing that we think is, is, is worthy of commemoration. Well, you know, my dad was a career Navy. He was an enlisted man in the Navy. He was a chief on a submarine. And so for me, the you know, I, I do take a special pride because I think military personnel who give their lives or who serve in war should always be remembered hundreds of years later. I mean, we, we have a debt to them as a country. Well, uh, first of all, my father was also a submariner, so, so offline we'll have to compare notes. Okay. Um, but but we yeah it was, it, but the, one of the points we make is that yes we have a debt to them who have gone before, and the fact that they are no longer with us doesn't erase that debt. But by honoring a generation of of servicemen and women who are no longer with us, 
We are at that time, I think, sending a strong message to today's veterans that mm-hmm. 100 years from now they will not be forgotten. One of our one of our volunteer not no longer a volunteer. She's now the the, the director of operations for the commission. A woman named Rebecca Wilson is a uh, did two tours in in uh, uh, in, in in Iraq. Wow. Uh, in the army, and she came to us back or came to me back when I was still working on the D.C. War Memorial, and she had seen it, and she wanted to volunteer to simply to simply to help rake the leaves and scrub the place down and clean it up every Memorial Day and Veterans Day. And she felt that strong kinship uh, to this generation of veterans that preceded her by, by, by 100 years. Um, and so there is that kinship. And, and again, we can send a strong message that I think is worth sending to today's veterans that you know, we're not just going to thank them for their service when we see them today, but, but we're going to remember them as well. We, well, it's uh, not just a, it's not just veterans. It's also their families, the families of veterans, people who didn't come back, and even people who, you know, the veterans who did come back. I think the families need to know that their beloved sons, husbands, brothers, and fathers will not, and you know, and the women will not be forgotten. I think this is it's crucial for the mental health of families as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So why why a competition? Why did you choose to hold a competition rather than just hiring someone? Well, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I, I throughout throughout the last several years, I've I've watched a variety of memorial and other public design processes uh, in Washington, and I've tried to take lessons from them for for better or for worse. Uh, certainly, the you know the story of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is a very famous one and a very inspiring one. That was a an anonymous open competition similar to the one that we conducted. That was won by a 21-year-old Yale architecture student uh, who never would have been identified if uh, if we had approached this by reaching out to established designers or firms or whatnot and, and commissioned a design from them. So we were inspired by that. We'd seen variations of that approach in other projects here in Washington that, that seemed to have been uh, successful. We the, the democratic nature of, of that of a competition appealed to us, um, given the nature of the of the project. Uh, we wanted to to generate as many fresh ideas as we could. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, when you consult with an established designer, you are getting the benefit of their expertise and their experience. Um, but they also have their, their they've, they've built a design style that they are operating in. And we mm-hmm. wanted to, we weren't opposed to that, but we certainly wanted to have the opportunity to hear from, from you know, new designers as well. Um, frankly, I always had a mild daydream that, that some some junior high class would would submit an entry on an eight by eleven sheet of ruled notebook paper. Oh, and that's that would, cool. And that that would get serious attention. That was that was absolutely unrealistic, but but it was nice to think about. Yeah. Um, and so, but we wanted to make it we wanted to make it democratic. We wanted to to um, to get a wide range of ideas. Um, we wanted to. I think those are the main reasons. We made it international. Uh, we had a we had a discussion about whether to limit it to American designers or whether whether to throw it open internationally. 
We chose to do it, make it an international competition, again, in part because of the international character of the event, um, and, and in part because there is today still great gratitude uh, among the Western European nations for the role the United States played in the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to give designers in those countries the opportunity to express that gratitude. So we did a two-stage competition. The first stage was completely completely anonymous, and we received 360 submissions from all over the world, and, uh, and an independent jury of, of experts in various design and historical fields selected five finalists, and it turned out that all five finalists were American designers. Uh, but it was of note that one of the design teams was headed up by two immigrants from Spain, and so it did capture that part of the experience, which we were which we were pleased by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, and then, of course, the the, uh, the the winner of the competition, the, the the author of the selected design concept, was this uh, fellow named Joseph Weishar, who is a 25 year old uh, uh, graduate of the University of Arkansas School of Architecture. And the nature of the architecture licensing process is uh, you're not a licensed architect when you get your undergraduate degree. You still have to serve an apprenticeship and go through various various credentialing steps. So, so Joe's not a licensed architect, and uh, and he's had to associate himself with a with a licensed architecture firm. But you know that that we felt that validated validated our decision uh, to go with an open competition because. Joe never would have uh, been selected in a million years if this had been had been done on the basis of portfolios or on the basis of invitations to selected firms uh, to submit concepts or otherwise uh, apply for the job. Uh, so we're, uh, you know, not that not that working with a with a young arch, young designer doesn't create its own challenges, mm-hmm. but uh, but again, we feel that our choice was vindicated and that and that this this professional jury uh, selected his design. And we're excited to go forward with them. So let's get to the nuts and bolts. And how is this memorial being paid for? Well, Congress, uh, we had to go to Congress for authorization to do the memorial. And as is the practice when it comes to public memorials in Washington, D.C., Congress stipulated that it would be paid for by by private funds. So there's no congressional appropriation, no taxpayer dollars being used to to pay for this. And, And that goes goes so far that when we engage some of the public agencies uh, to work on this with us, we have to pay them for their services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is being funded entirely by by private donations. Uh, we are obviously pursuing uh, large donations from foundations and corporations and high net worth individuals, but we are also, uh, we, you know, this will also be done at the grassroots, uh, and we're soliciting donations in any amount from, from the general public, and, and here I'll make my advertising pitch. Okay, uh, and tell people where to sub- send it or where to submit online and otherwise. Absolutely. The easiest way is to go online and, and to the uh, uh, the design the, the site you named earlier. That's uh, www1 design. You can also get there by going to worldwar1centennial.org and clicking on the tab that says Honor, and that will get you to the memorial as well. Uh, so, you know, we've got a campaign to, for, for people to contribute $11.11, uh, that number being symbolically important because the, the war ended at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, November 11, 1918. 
Uh, obviously, we take donations larger than $11. Um, and so there's that opportunity for people to contribute because uh, every step of the way has to be paid for. We have to pay for the design work that we're currently undergoing right now just to get to a design that we can then submit to the reviewing agencies and, and get their approval and work, work through the regulatory approval process before we even get to construction. Um, and so that's a, that's a big task, but, but one we're confident uh, we'll be able to achieve. That's, that's exciting. So along this journey of creating this, Edwin, who has inspired you? That's a good question. I don't know that I've been... Uh, if you ask me my inspiration, I'll cite I'll cite two. I'll, I'll cite three existing memorials, and then I'll cite a person who I've come across as I, as I've been involved in the process. And I'll start with the D.C. War Memorial itself, which I always liked because it is this classical, serene, elegant, simple, timeless memorial. And as I say, that was tucked away in this grove of trees, just a very quiet, contemplative place. It had no overt meaning. Uh, but the nature of the place and the nature of the what, why it was there gave it meaning. Uh, it's, and it's now one of my favorite memorials. I have two other favorite memorials here in Washington. One is the EOG Memorial. It's really the Marine Corps Memorial, but popularly known as the Marine Corps Memorial. And it's the famous statue of the of the five soldiers at EOG of planting the American mm-hmm. flag. Uh, and that's, again, that's a very triumphal celebratory memorial. It's just got great power. Those figures are so so tense, so strong, so active, uh, and then around the plinth of that memorial are written all the names of the major campaigns that the Marine Corps has been a part of since it was created in 1775. And those place names to me have, have great mythology. And then at the, at the very far end of the great axis of Washington, D.C., right at the base of the Capitol, you have the Grant Memorial, uh, which has, and, and Washington has so many so many statues of generals on horses, and uh, they've got their saber uplifted and their hats off and the horses rearing, and they're these very dramatic, uh, heroic statues. And, and Grant is completely opposite. Grant is sitting on a horse in the rain. He's got his hat pulled down over his eyes. He's got a, his coat slouched around him. His shoulders are hunched. Uh, and you get the fatigue and the weariness and the burden of responsibility of, of war. Uh, and it's just a simple statue of a man on a horse, but there's a lot of meaning. And then around him, flanking him, are two sculptural works that just show soldiers in the throes of the passion of the fight, and and they're just these roiling, turbulent, dramatic scenes uh, with different different characters, with different expressions and poses. I, I think of the the burghers of Calais when I think of that. Um, it's all these individual characters in a larger composition and, and how they sort of evoke so much. Those are the things that I think about when I think about a memorial. The, the individual that I think of is a, is a gentleman named Charles Whittlesley, who, like me, was a lawyer uh, in, in New York, and he joined the Army when the U.S. entered the war. And he became the commander of what, 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 was, what, what became known as the Lost Battalion. And that was a, a battalion of about 550 soldiers that in the last great campaign of the war, the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, uh, advanced well ahead of the of the units on either flank, and became cut off and surrounded by by, by German forces. Oh. And they were surrounded for six days. Uh, they ran out of uh, food, water, uh, ammunition, medical supplies. They were taking oh. bandages off of 
off of dead soldiers and reusing them on the wounded. They were being shelled by their own artillery. They were fending off repeated uh, artillery and hand-to-hand assaults by by the Germans. Uh, They were crawling through gunfire to get to water. Uh, just, just you know, one of the great, one of the great heroic stands in, in you know, centuries of, of or millennia of military history. And, and after six days, they were eventually relieved. And Major Whittlesley was promoted to colonel. He was awarded the medal. So those 550 soldiers, 200 of them were able to walk out uh, wow. at the end of that. Um, and Major Whittlesley was promoted to lieutenant colonel. He was awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, he was a pallbearer for the unknown soldier after the war when, when that soldier was interred at Arlington National Cemetery. And later that year, uh, Charles Whittlesley was on a cruise uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, and one night after, after dinner in the, in, the, in the dining room of the cruise, he, he, he got up, excused himself, left his friends, went out on deck, and stepped off the side of the ship. What? And, uh, Why? Um, what, what, we know, you know, what we know today is post-traumatic stress, you know, we called shell shock and battle fatigue back then, mm-hmm. and he was a casualty of the war. Um, and you know what he led his men through, and and what you know what he must have endured and carried with him for you know for for a number of years after the war, uh, is you know is just you know is just tremendously powerful, and and for me stands in for for what those soldiers did. Well, that and, would be a uh, movie. That whole story, and it would be a wonderful movie. Well, and it, it has been. Yeah, is it been. okay? There was, there was I, it sounds like some years ago. I don't know if it was made for TV or not, but there was a movie some years ago called The Lost Battalion. Actually, Ricky Schroeder played played Charles Whittlesley, and uh, and it's probably been depicted before as well. But uh, yeah, no, it's a tremendous story. And there's you know, of course, there's many, many, many stories equally as powerful. But but that's the one I sort of perhaps because we are both lawyers, I've I've sort of focused on. Mm-hmm. What are some of the important points? that you've learned along the way of this whole process of leading the commission and getting to this design stage? What are some of the important points of what you've learned? A lot of what I learned I knew already, I think. One of the, so that this is not a simple process of a patron and an artist. Uh, we're not in a situation where we can hire Hire Joe and, and of course Sabin as well, who will be providing the, the the sculptural memorial elements to this design. We can't just simply sit down with them and say, "Here's what we'd like," you know, go off and give us an idea, and 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 we'll agree on it and we'll we'll execute it. To do a public memorial in Washington D.C. is to implicate a number of different regulatory regimes and a number of different federal and, 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 and state agencies with oversight over this process and many, many different stakeholders with very different interests uh, in, in what comes out of this. And, of course, throughout, through that, there are inevitably going to be opposing views. And the one thing I give myself credit for for understanding at the outset was the importance of trying to be absolutely transparent and trying to engage all of those many stakeholders at the very beginning uh, so that you can understand what the issues, what the objectives will be, what the objections will be, uh, so that people can be heard, people can understand that you have heard them, people can participate in and shape the process, and that people can understand your process and understand your decision-making and, and therefore understand what you, the decisions you come to. Uh, and they may not agree with them, but they understand it. And I think mm-hmm. as... 
we are a public commission. We're a federal commission. Uh, you know, our commissioners are unpaid, but but uh, we are a federal congressionally chartered commission, and we have that responsibility. We are not a private patron, uh, but we are doing something for the country, uh, and not just for the country today, but for the country 100 years from now. And it would be arrogant of us to presume that we we know ourselves uh, what the right outcome is. Now, it's frankly a tortuous process to involve all those people, but it's a necessary, it's a necessary process, and I think at the end of the day, yields a good result, but it is, uh, you know, on any given day, this process can be very frustrating, but but the one thing I've learned is the importance of keeping your eye on the ball and the objective and understanding that this is, you know, an argument or a dispute or a, or a criticism or something that you may have on one day is, is part, of a, part of an ongoing conversation, mm-hmm. and that conversation is vital to have, and we welcome participating in it. Uh, and so you have to keep reminding yourself that it is part of a conversation. There's a lot of other people, most of whom are acting in good faith and have the same objectives and interests that we have. They have different perspectives, and those different perspectives are valuable. Um, well, uh, let me. You know, we we have about seven minutes left, so I want to. Since you talked about transparency, I called in the morning of the announcement because there was a phone number on the website saying we're going to discuss the design. And, of course, that was before we knew that Sabin and Joe had won. So I called in to listen. And the first hour and a half was the commission talking about outreach efforts. And it really sounded fascinating because even in the six minutes we have left, can you just mention some of the outreach efforts that the commission is doing in terms of education and commemoration? Our stat, we have a, we have a. If you read our, if you read the statute that created the commission, it has five. It tells us to do five things. Only one of them is to produce our own programs, and the other four are really about encouraging, facilitating, promoting other government and private, state and federal and local organizations to engage in their own programming related to the centennial. Uh, and one of the rewarding things about this process has been to observe that that what's best about the American observation of the centennial is really what's best about the country as a whole, and that the best things we do come from the ground up, uh, come from the grassroots, come from individuals and organizations and towns and states saying, I've got an idea and I'm going to pursue it and I'm not going to wait for someone else to do it and I'm not going to wait for someone to tell me to do it or pay me to do it, but I'm just going to do it because I'm passionate about it. And so... Uh, a lot of the outreach that we have done is to those kinds of organizations, to state governments, to museums, to historical societies, to cultural organizations, to, 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 to libraries, to organizations all around the country to say, you know what, we think you ought to be involved in the centennial. And a lot of times they already are. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things out there we never heard of. And, and one thing that your, 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 your audience might be interested in is, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts uh, will this fall in November open what will be the first comprehensive exhibition on World War One in American art. Wow! Uh, never been done in a hundred years, and that is the brainchild of a curator at the Pennsylvania Academy uh, who wanted to do this and took it on and has made it happen. And uh, and in other cases, we've reached out. I I set up a meeting at the National Portrait Gallery here in Washington. Uh, to say, you know what, you ought to do something for the war, and they hadn't really thought about it. And I was worried that I might have to explain to them why World War I was important, but then the director of the museum came in and sat down and started talking in an Australian accent, and I knew she would understand the war. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and so I believe they're doing something. And, and 
the Library of America, based out of New York, uh, which is the sort of publishes the unofficial American canon. They're preparing uh, a volume of, of the most significant American writings on World War One, and I, I I give myself credit for for initiating that conversation with them, and and they probably would have come to it themselves, but but after meeting with me, they they decided that. We're setting up state commissions all around the country. We've got a very active committee in New York City. Uh, and when you start to get people from the universities and the historical societies and the libraries and the Department of Education and the Department of Veterans Affairs, when you get all those elements in a given state into one room and they start talking to each other, they start feeding. They start, uh, you know, it begins to coalesce. They realize how they can work together, how they can support each other. They hear what other states are doing. They pick up on those ideas. It's 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 enormously gratifying and rewarding. Well, let and me so ask you. Let me ask you if like school groups or a school library wants to do something, should they email your office? Should they go on the website? How do my listeners participate? They can do either of those things. And again, if you go to our main webpage, there is a tab that in fact says participate. Uh, and that will tell you how you can volunteer, how you can intern, how you can get involved with your state, uh, how you can get involved with the many partners that we've identified, uh, and then obviously how to contact us. And so there are many ways to engage at this, at, in the centennial, anywhere from the local to the national level. And, uh, and again, go to our website, worldwarocentennial.org, and click on the tab that says participate, and that'll, and that'll tap you into various opportunities. Or, or hit contact and, and email us directly, and we'll respond. Um, as I say, so, it's, it's in, this, in, in this country, it will be the collective of activities around the country that will that will make this centennial a, a success. Well, Edwin, we're running out of time, so do you have any last words for my listeners about this commission or the design or participating in anything? Any last words? Well, unfortunately, we never really got to some of the design issues, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, well, you're welcome back anytime. Just no, I think, I think our mission is to get, introduce people to the war through whatever channel of interest they pursue, whether it's through art or whether it's through cultural history or whether it's through the history of civil rights or whether it's through its political affairs or international history or whether it's through music. You know, the war touched every aspect of society, and therefore it's reflected in every aspect of society. And so, you know, to take this Pennsylvania Academy exhibit, you know, we see that as introducing people who are passionate about World War One to art and see it as introducing people who are passionate about art to World War One. And the more connections like that we can make, the more successful we'll be. Well, thank you so much. Um, for being on the show, Edwin. You've been wonderful. And I'd like to encourage listeners to go to www.worldwar1centennial.org to learn you about to learn more about you and the, your work in the commission. Thank you again, Edwin. Thank you, Tracy. So that was um, Commissioner Edwin Fountain of the World War One Centennial Commission talking about this whole process of creating interest in World War One. So um, that was he was a wonderful guest. And to anyone who's listening, thank you so much for joining us. And please come back next Friday, March 4th at noon, when we'll speak with author and psychotherapist Dave Rico. Thanks again for listening. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us.
Come back next week.